Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, filmmaker and cinema lover Mark Cousins on his latest documentary, The Story of Looking, all about, well, looking when he was faced with the possibility of sight loss and what he saw. Mark Ryle reviews the new Maradona-inspired Paolo Sorrentino movie The Hand of God, as well as the gripping new drama Blue Bayou. Plus, musician and now novelist Declan O'Rourke chats about his favourite film. Also, your chance to win a copy of the science fiction thriller Reminiscence on DVD. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on News Talk. Good weekend to you all. Special hello to the listeners who went along to the screening last night of The Electric Life of Louis Wayne, which we were giving away last week. I do hope you enjoyed that, and I do hope the rest of you are all well as we hurtle towards the 25th of December. There'll be very little Christmas talk here, for now, anyway. We'll be drowning in it, as Muppets Christmas Carols and... Home Alone is is all I can talk about in a few weeks' time, but more of that anon. I want to start tonight by saying a special hello to one of my dearest friends and most loyal listeners, Robin, who I think actually listens every week and has been listening to me on the radio for, I would say, over 20 years, even back in the heady bizarre days of Dublin local radio. So uh, a special hello to Robin this week. Now, in TV, I was watching this. If I'm ticked off or kind of jumpy lately, what do you make of that? Well, I think that means you're ticked off or kind of jumpy. We're in this together. Any evidence this was a drug-related crime? Whatever there is to find in there, the sheriff's gonna find it. There's nothing. There's always something. Yes, now that is a clip from American Rust, which started on Sky Atlantic on Monday nights, and it's a nine-parter. It's available now to... You can download it all or watch it every week if you choose. And it's Jeff Daniels playing a chief of police in... A, roughish town let's call it in Pennsylvania and Jeff Daniels is kind of playing a Robin Hood type police chief in that he's forced to decide how far he's willing to go when the son of a woman he's in love with is accused of murder he's also Robin Hoodish in that he takes a pretty egalitarian view of maybe some of the bad things happening in town this is a struggling American town the name kind of gives that away a lot of it's community have turned to crime and they seem to be addicted to various pills and even Jeff Daniels is overcoming some stuff in his past and is taking a variety of pills himself to deal with post-traumatic stress and all. I really like this. I've only watched two so it's early doors. I, I didn't get time this week to watch any more but there's an inevitable comparison to the best TV show of the year so far or of recent years to my mind as you've heard me say on this show many times Mayor of Easttown with Kate Winslet also playing a police chief in a kind of grotty town in America who has to make some tough decisions. And most of you who listen to this show know that that 
TV show was immense. This is a little bit like this, and that's not to do with a disservice. I'm fine with that. Maybe it's filling a Mayor of Easttown-shaped hole in my life, but uh, I've enjoyed it so far. American Rust, I'm going to watch the rest of it and report to you more, but Jeff Daniels as the world-weary police chief is great. He's a brilliant actor, and at this age of his career, he just carries himself with a certain, you know, world-weary confidence. He's, he's fantastic in it. So I'm enjoying it so far. More to follow. Now, to celebrate the release of Reminiscence as a physical home entertainment release, we have five copies to give away. In Reminiscence, Nick Bannister, played by Hugh Jackman, a private investigator of the mind, navigates the darkly alluring world of the past by helping his clients access lost memories. Living on the fringes of the sunken Miami coast, his life is forever changed when he takes on a new client, May, played by Rebecca Ferguson. A simple matter of lost and found becomes a dangerous obsession. As Bannister fights to find the truth about May's disappearance, he uncovers a violent conspiracy and must ultimately answer the question, how far would you go to hold on to the ones you love? Now, as I say, we have five copies of this science fiction thriller to give away. Reminiscence is kind of a hard word to type. It would be for me. So why don't you just text the word REM, R-E-M, if you like, to 53106 or email us screentime at newstalk.com, the word REM, followed by your name, and we will pick five lucky winners, or Anne-Marie Kane, who's been round the clock with DVDs and organising screenings of late. Uh, we'll pick a winner and we will be in touch early next week. That's five copies of Reminiscence. Text the word REM to 53106 or email screentime at newstalk.com, followed by your name, and Anne-Marie Kane will pick a winner. Now it's new release time and this week we are looking at The Hand of God, the new Paolo Sorrentino movie, which is in cinemas from this Friday, December 3rd, and will be on Netflix on the 15th of December. And also, uh, I guess you'd say very different movie, although maybe some parallels, let's find out. Blue Bayou, which is also in cinemas from this Friday, that's the 3rd of December. He was off last week at his annual Morris Dancing Thinking, but he's back in effect. Mark Ryle, hello. Hi, John. It went well for you last week. It did, you and the guys. As good as it gets. Yeah, I would have thought so. Super. Okay, we'll start with The Hand of God because I've seen this like you have. Uh, Paolo Sorrentino, Sorrentino, an acquired taste, but a popular director. He's won an Oscar and all that. What's going on in The Hand of God? Uh, Yeah, I think he won the Oscar, Best Foreign Picture Oscar in 2013 for um, The Great Beauty. La Gran Beliza. Si, 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 molto. Yeah, va bene, va bene, molto. Um, Scusa, so Marco. The Hand of God, I'm, I'm guessing, is heavy, heavily autobiographical. Um, it's set against a gorgeous backdrop of Naples, and it's the coming-of-age story of Fabietto Schisa, who's growing up around his extended family of eccentrics, and then um, the unconnected but, but world-shattering events of Maradona signing with Napoli and also Fellini casting his latest picture are going on in the background as well. And of course, there, and I don't think it's a spoiler because you'll find it in most reviews, he encounters a pretty traumatic event in his teenage years because his parents die, uh, as happened to Paolo Sorrentino himself. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, so it's a, it's a coming of age story. And I think for me, a coming of age story should, should do two things. Firstly, I think it should, it should be extraordinary or else, you know, why do we care? And secondly, 
it should be relatable. So we're invested emotionally. Um, I think the hand of God is certainly extraordinary, and there's stuff in here you will you will not find in Great Expectations. Um, but I, for me, I, I can't really say it's relatable. Um, it's this is definitely not a case of well, we'll we've all been there, right? <laughs> um, because we, no, we we certainly have not. Um, Having said all that, though, it's it, it it's not as as cold and emotionally detached as as some of his other works. So I suppose that is something. And um, it's it, it is something of a problem, though, that that I thought that every other character, bar the the Sorrentino proxy in this one, is slightly more interesting. Mm. Yeah, I I can see that he he's he's a kind of blank canvas, and the other characters around him are definitely more interesting. And I suppose a big part of it as well is he finds redemption in a love of cinema and possibly movie making, and the aforementioned coming of Maradona. Very much shoehorned in, though the love of cinema. I think he, he like it's towards the end of the movie where he decides that oh, this is what I, I I want to do. I think he's seen four movies at that point though and mm. it kind of comes out of nowhere it's 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 quite weird um the, it, it's 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 a drama but there's these awkward bits of comedy peppered in it um and i think sorrentino's sense of humor it's extremely broad it, for me it was a bit carry on in italy it's a bit core blimey you know it's very bawdy and i i, I wasn't really amused i suppose it has got a long it's got a lot in common with the Fellini's Amarcord, which I kind of found to be similarly bawdy. But I suppose for Sorrentino, that was probably the point. I, th- I think he's trying to em- emulate Fellini. Um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, that what I found Fellini-esque was his kind of extended family and neighbours. They were this yeah, motley very- crew. Very broad, very caricature-like, aren't they? Mm, yeah, I suppose they are caricature-like, but they were they were entertaining. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, as well as that, I suppose a lot of the comedy is is front-loaded, so it kind of it gets to the the, the emotional stuff later on. I I think for for me, this it, it feels like Sorrentino has taken the bits of the story that I suppose another filmmaker would have left out and built his story around these bits. So I think there is an interesting story here, but it's not necessarily the one that Sorrentino has, has decided to tell. And it's that's undoubtedly because of the autobiographical aspect. I think things that are important, they're, they're of importance to Sorrentino that aren't necessarily important to the rest of us. I'm not talking about the big stuff here. I'm talking about the, the incidental stuff along the way. And when you said there's, you know, the problem with this as a coming age of coming of age thing is that you can't relate necessarily. What did you find unrelatable? The fact that he wanted to be a movie maker or? Well, no, I think that was kind of a a, a fault. And I think that could maybe have just been better fleshed out in the script. I think that was kind of just shoehorned in at the end. I think for me, it just, I didn't find the the character relatable. And plus the the fact that he's surrounded by this, this, this family of, um, of, of really big characters mm-hmm. um and then he's kind of like a cipher in the middle of it mm. um it it's it all the other thing i'll tell you is he he tends to sequence scenes in an order that isn't necessarily beneficial to like a strong compelling overall narrative there was a couple of times i thought why is this bit here and why is he showing me this but i i felt that way with all of his other stuff as well so i guess i suppose if you're a fan of sorrentino then, you know, you shouldn't be surprised or, or too bothered by that. Yeah, you see, I enjoyed this because it it's nice to see 
different movie making. Uh, you know, you and I watch a lot of movies and, and this feels very Fellini-esque, Italian-esque. The storytelling's a bit different, even where they get a sense of humor or they find, or he, you know, Sorrentino is telling us what he thinks is funny. Even the fact that we don't always laugh, it's it's pleasingly different. And I also thought Naples looked great and oh, beautiful God. and also yeah. grimy at times. Uh, yeah. And it was shot beautifully and there's some seascapes that are wonderful. And, you know, I I share with Paolo Sorrentino the love of Maradona. I remember aged 11 watching him score, not the Hand of God goal, but the other one against the UK. And my, you know, lifelong love of football began. So that appealed to me. So I'm sensing I like this more than you did. I, I'm glazing over um no 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 like it's it's it, i haven't said all that it, it's a gorgeous looking movie it, mm. and it's it, it's exquisitely shot and sorrentino really knows how to set up a shot um i have found him to be very all surface no feeling um but i suppose this one the the, the really that those gorgeous visuals they're they're backed up with with a bit of heart underneath so it's i suppose it's progress Mm. it's also i mean the death of his parents is the way that's handled i thought was quite affecting a lot of the yeah time. yeah yeah it was very powerful okay so what would you say stars wise um it's not the worst paolo sorrentino movie i've sat through so i'm going to give it a three mm. i'm going to give it a three and a half because uh okay. i i enjoyed the ride as i said uh so that's the hand of god and it's reference in part to that famous maradona goal by paolo sorrentino and it is on netflix from the 15th of december but is it in cinemas on the 3rd of december so that would let us believe that they're hoping for oscar glory so something different which i haven't i'm sorry i should say mark gave it a three and i gave it a three and a half now something i haven't seen but mark has is blue by you Mm. This is a a very impressive piece of work. It's written and directed and starring a, a very very impressive Justin Chan. It's based. Who people around, will know from the Twilight movies, right? I believe so. I don't. I don't know him from the Twilight movies. Okay. My my knowledge of the Twilight movies is is thin. Um, it's it's based around uh, U.S. immigration policy and a bizarre piece of legislature that I won't pretend to fully understand. But basically, it means that non-U.S. born children adopted by U.S. citizens pre-2001, I think, are not entitled to citizenship. And they're now facing deportation in, in large volumes, which is crazy because these people have grown up in America for most of their lives and they have no connection whatsoever with their countries of birth. Um, but because of this bizarre piece of, of Kafka-esque bureaucracy, they can now be taken from their families and their children and deported. So it is Blue Bayou. It's set in present-day New Orleans. And um, Justin Chan, he plays Antonio LeBlanc. He was born in Korea, but he was adopted by American parents at the age of three. Um, and Antonio is he's poor, but he's very, very happily married to Kathy, who's played by Alicia Vikander. Um, and Antonio, is he's a decent guy, and he adores his stepdaughter, and the couple have a baby on the way. Uh, but he's eking out a living as a tattoo artist. But because of his shady past, he he really is struggling to find uh, lucrative and, and stable employment. Um, and then they have this, uh, the, Antonio and Cathy, they have this fluke run in with the law um, that escalates very quickly. And then Antonio is arrested and ends up getting processed by U.S. immigration. 
Okay. And he was one of these children that you spoke about in the first part. That's his background. He's lived his entire life in America. And then this fluke of, um, you know, bureaucracy, he, he discovers that he's, he's going to be deported back to Korea. Mm. Which he has, he he doesn't speak Korean. He doesn't have any connection with the country. He has, you know, he's got a baby on the way, and um, yeah, it's just it's it's a crazy situation. Okay, and in terms of what I've read about this, it's quite a tearjerker. It is. Um, I would describe it as it's a series of small, subtle, very well written moments that that build into a very, very powerful, very affecting whole, um, and it's shot in, in a very intimate earthy kind of handheld style Mm -hmm. but then it's peppered with these these recurring flashes of of memory and um of antonio as a baby with his birth mother um holding him over uh i think it's it's a lake or a body of water or something but these 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 flashes of of dreams are are done in a sort of a super saturated unnatural colors and they they really stand out against the rest of the movie but um memory is very important in blue bayou and how the events of childhood can cast a a long shadow into adulthood Mm. and you know no matter how much antonio pushes against it the cards are always stacked against him Mm. and justin chong wrote it directed and acted in it so you know sometimes that can be problematic uh but i'm sensing it isn't in this no he's incredible it's it's a very uh it's a quietly committed performance it's very subtle and it's completely credible Mm. um alicia vikander she is just as good um but i tell you the standout for me was um the eight-year-old who plays the the stepdaughter uh, sydney kowalski mm-hmm. she is just incredible she's completely natural and at ease in front of the camera and the scenes she has a couple of scenes between her and sean interacting and they're just a delight there's a connection there that is so incredibly sweet she's she's extraordinary okay and you know it sounds like it uh, maybe a very obvious question but is it depressing um it, well i mean it's 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 hard hitting stuff um there it, it's there's enough yeah, drama I mean, though and and human emotion to stop it being depressing absolutely mostly right it's very low key uh, it's got a kind of an, an indie sensibility mm-hmm. and it works very very well um things tend to get a bit bigger and more melodramatic um towards the end and that kind of doesn't work so well there's an incident in the final act that is extremely uh, sensational and overblown and it's jarring because uh this event it's so out of step with with you know the the reserved tone of the rest of the movie yeah and and the finale in in particular is is very histrionic okay. and it's about as subtle as a as a brick through a window but okay. I suppose justin chan is very obviously passionate about the message that he's trying to get out and he, yeah. he doesn't have time for subtly Okay, well, maybe that can be forgiven. So that that sounds intriguing. Uh, it's a shame I didn't get to see it. What would you say stars-wise for Blue Bayou? It's extremely worthwhile. I'm going to give it a four. Okay, okay. And that is in cinemas from this Friday, the 3rd of December. I haven't seen it, but most importantly, Mark has. And he has given it a sterling four. So let's take a quick clip. He has two kids. I mean, listen to him. Look at him. He's American. It doesn't matter what he looked like. It's immigration policy. I was brought here when I was three. I've been here for over 30 years. Well, sometimes with these international adoptions in the 80s, the the proper paperwork. Yeah, but like, like I said, I've been here for over 30 years. Okay, can't you just tell them that 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 I was I was adopted by white people? 
I understand your frustration. I really do, but that's not how it works. I hear your options. You can depart voluntarily and have a chance of receiving status, or you can stay and appeal. But if you do that, and the judge don't rule in your favor, you forfeit any opportunity to return to this country. What does that mean? It means if he fights and loses, he can never come back. That's a clip of Blue Bayou, which Mark gave four stars to now in cinemas from the 3rd of December. Well, you you can't be listening to this show before Friday the 3rd of December or else you've warped time. So I don't actually need to say the date. It's now in cinemas. Talking of warping time, Mark, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Talk to you next week. Up next, the great Mark Cousins. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Mark Cousins is one of, I suppose, Britain's best-known filmmakers, writers of films, and let's face it, I guess you'd call him a cinephile. His cult film show, Videodrome, turned many a young person onto movies they'd never heard or seen before. And a series of interviews with the likes of Martin Scorsese and Jack Lemmon in Scene by Scene are rightly seen as classics. We spoke last year for his epic documentary, Women Make Film, all about female filmmakers, which I gifted to two Two different people as Christmas presents last year. He's chatting me today to me today about his latest work, The Story of Looking. It's an intriguing film that, if you'll pardon the pun, looks at the art of looking. Mark, in the course of the movie, is dealing with the fact that he has a cataract and he's due to have a pretty serious eye operation that may affect his vision. So in an almost, I suppose, Proustian way, he takes a visual tour of what he's been looking at all his life and memories and inner visions and of course some of his favourite movies that he's looked at over the years. It's an incredible ride and I'm delighted to say he joins me now to chat about it. Hello Mark, how are you? I'm great John, how are you? I'm very well. One thing that happened to me and I re-watched the movie last night and I'm wondering do you find people are having this reaction to it that I, st- I mentioned Proust there very pretentiously yes. but I started having Proustian moments. I thought of sunlight when I was walking down the street with my mother when I was three I thought of a beach in Hawaii I was on on honeymoon I thought of the copper in my three kids hair and the images that I cherish that if my sight was possibly been taken that I would cherish or that I would see when I close my eyes are people having that reaction to it God, I love that copper in my kids' hair. They all have orange hair, uh, so yeah. That's lovely, you know, you're even using very visual words there. There has been a bit of that, yeah. I think that, you know, it's it's quite an honest and and personal film, as you know, John. And, and, And what I'm saying is that when I was threatened with the loss of my eyesight, I went back and looked in that... Proustian way and other people have saying said to me yeah uh, I, I asked people to I say in the film what what it was how many sunsets have you seen how many dead bodies have you seen so I'm encouraging people to be open about the emotional aspects of looking and what the question you asked was open about that as well mm. and you know we, you obviously deal with movies that you've loved and that have a lot to say about vision and looking and we'll get to those in a minute but it's very personal uh i mean you're lying in bed for part of it uh i saw bits of your body i never thought i'd see before on screen had you any reservations about going so deep because you you know you're more known for you know talking to other people and other people's movies and that kind of thing was there any reluctance to go this deep into mark so to speak 
No, I don't think so. I mean, it is very personal. You see my full body, shall we say, a couple of times. And yeah, it's, you know, I haven't, I haven't interviewed somebody in t- more than 20 years. And so that bit of my life is long gone. And I just uh, I've o- o- always try to make films that are honest and open and personal and poetic and passionate and all those P words, you know. And um, so I wasn't at all um, r- reluctant to lie in bed and talk to camera and say here's what scares me here's about here at one point I talk about the bits of my body like I don't like my chest for example Mm. and I'm honest about that and I think that's quite nice to do that especially if you're a man you know because as you and I know especially for Irish men there's a sense the certain sense of what a man is and you know there's a you're supposed to be quite confident I think and and dare I say even macho in some ways you know and if you get beyond that then as a filmmaker you get into a kind of rich area, a kind of hotspot of 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 uh, more emotion, more feeling, more availability, and more perhaps poetics. Mm. Some of the outside of the movies of other people, some of the footage you show is is remarkable stuff. You have a, I think it's a uh, some kind of smoke tower being demolished, and you, you capture yeah. that in Edinburgh. You, you have a, a, a guy on a chimney stack who. We don't yeah. know what's going to happen to him. Were these things that were in your collection or did you go out and do yeah. these for this movie? Very much in my collection uh, because, you know, I, I just film every single day, you know, like mm. maybe I do 5, 10, 15, 20 shots per day. And so over the years, given the age that I am, I have amassed thousands and thousands of images and you don't know what you're going to use use them for. It's like having a sketchbook or a diary or quite, you know, it's just pleasure. I don't do it for any particular purpose. But when I come to make a film like The Story of Looking, where I, where I look over my shoulder to see what I've seen, then they're all available. Mm. And what I'm sitting talking to you right now, looking out at the chimney stack where some years ago I saw that guy that you refer to standing out on, he had obviously climbed up on the roof uh, and it it was intriguing and fascinating why he was there. He was smoking a cigarette. Uh, He didn't look scared. And it was just one of those pleasures. And as I talk to you now, the sun, you know, the light is changing here in Edinburgh. And again, the pleasure of right here, right now, you know, that's what I tried to capture. And I think that's what that lad standing on the roof was enjoying the pleasure of right here, right now. So are you always on the lookout with your camera? Are you, are you one of those people who has it at all times in case life might need to be photographed? Always, always, and not in a professional way, to be honest, just in a kind of personal way, you know, like everybody's got a phone with a good camera on it now, and we're all taking pictures of our friends, and often we take pictures of our, when we've got together with our friends, because we're happy, Mm. and we're joyous, and this moment might not last, and things might change, and Mm. a a pandemic might hit or something, you know, so (laughs) I'm always... (laughs) <laughs> I'm always trying to, you know, just uh, enjoy the moment. And one of my ways of enjoying the everyday life is to film it. Mm. The movie is very philosophical uh, and it makes all sorts of arguments, I suppose, about the philosophy of art, but, you know, life, life in general, the philosophy of life, whatever that's called. But one bit I really liked <laughs> was you talk about selfies and I think there's a staggering figure, you know, it's it's 
three billion of them have been taken or it's three billion a year. It's something eye-watering, again, if you pardon the pun. But what I liked about yeah. your take on it was that we have a very snooty view about selfies. And in a way, you make the point, I guess, that, you know, who's to say they're not art or they're not keepsakes for a generation? I really like that because we do see selfies as kind of, I, I'm certainly guilty of thinking, oh, here's another burden we have to carry. But you see them a bit differently. Yeah, I think, you know, the educated middle classes, you know, with a sort of sense that an image or art is a rarefied, sophisticated, considered thing, can't encompass the idea that a snap, a moment, which might be out of focus, or everybody might be posing, might contain within it something wholly life-affirming. And I think that's what happens with the selfies. Obviously, you know, I, I would say that you know, imageries in social media can be used to bully people and body shame. So I'm not being totally naive about this, mm -hmm. but the self, you know, the selfie is often simply about saying, look, we're happy. We, I'm with my mates and we're in Prague or Venice or, or Galway or Edinburgh mm -hmm. and we're having fun and we've had a few beers or whatever it is. And we just want to capture this. And, you know, this is the first time in human history that we could capture this. And we don't want to be snobby about that, I mm. think. And we want to see past the aesthetics of it and past the fact that it's more, you know, for the first time ever, it's working class. People can take imagery, make imagery as well as middle class people. Yeah. So it's a cause, I think, for cautious celebration, I think. Yeah, cautious celebration. I like it. I was on my way in here and I was telling a colleague who sits near me that I was about to talk to you. And he said, oh, he's the guy who's into all the foreign movies. And when in this story of looking, you have lots of great clips from movies, you know, over the last hundred years and beyond. But for people who haven't seen it, sure, there's Andrei Tarkovsky in there, but you also have Greece in there. You also have Sunset Boulevard. So I, I think it's important to say that, you know, you're clearly, a, as I said in the intro, a cinephile, but it seems to me that as much as Tarkovsky, you know, Olivia Newton-John has fired your imagination Absolutely. cinematically as well, right? Of course, if you're if you're my age, I'm 56 now. You know, the the way she dressed at the end of Greece, you know, mm. whatever your sexuality, the the way she dressed at the end of Greece was like something so visual and so exciting, you know. And you know, I, I understand your friend saying he's into foreign movies. You know, what I, I would take out the word foreign from that sentence. And the truth is, I'm just into movies, yeah. and I try to be blind to categories of foreign and other, you know. And if you actually drill down into that that sentence. American cinema is foreign cinema, you know, so if we have to work out what foreign is yeah. to us as Irish people or British people, you know, then, you know, <laughs> American movies are foreign, you know, and for me, some of the films that are least foreign to me, foreign in the sense of what is my what what moves me, what's exciting me, what my desire is. The least foreign films might be Indian or Iranian mm. or African, you know? So that's the great thing about cinema, that it's a place of, uh, it's a jeu sans frontières. It's a place, it's a game without boundaries. And so we, we want to be into, if we love cinema, we want to be into any cinema from anywhere. Here, here. Tell me this, long story short, how is your eyesight now? Because in the movie, you are going for this serious operation where you're going to have a lens put into your eye once the cataract is removed. And I don't want to give any spoilers, but, but 
how how are how is your vision now? Are you still going to be able to make movies? And as you know, we filmed that, didn't we? We, yeah. we put a camera in, and so it's quite Brilliant. interesting to see me watch my own eye being cut into. Yeah, my eyesight is fantastic now. You know, I, uh, I uh, this cataract came really rapidly and advanced really hard. And so suddenly I had the cataract of a sort of 85 year old or something. So I was accelerated up the National Health Service. They mm. cut it out. And now my eye is great. I can, I no longer wear distance glasses of any sort. I've got a super x-ray vision and you know and, and and also it's really interesting because my eye became young you know and that's a sort of metaphor for yeah. other senses of rejuvenation i i have been rejuvenated by the process of getting a cataract uh, but I, I feel as a filmmaker i'm often you know sounds slightly fancy but i'm rejuvenated by making a film i be, i feel young again i'm I am an extremely energetic person for someone of my age. And, and, and this is another example. This film is another example of that rejuvenation. Yeah. Tell me this. You, you're, you're an erudite fellow in that you, you throw in casually in the movie a wine glass and you point out that this was one Jane Russell drank from in your apartment in Edinburgh, yeah. which she stayed for, for for a couple of nights. Like, we don't have to go into what happened or anything, but I just, and I don't mean that in a tawdy way, but just, it must, like, were you ringing people up going Jane Russell's in my apartment now it must have been odd to have her staying there for three nights yeah when you first I mean I started meeting movie stars in my 20s and for a working class guy from Belfast the initially that was very odd you know but very quickly I realized that they and I spoke the same language Mm. they were obviously famous and beautiful and I wasn't famous or beautiful but they we had this common language this lingua franca which was cinema so that meant that really quickly Jane Russell and Jack Lemon and Janet Lee and Lauren Bacall and all these people that I got to know we just talked about cinema and immediately the sort of awe or the sort of you know the fascination reduced mm-hmm. and so that was the case with with Jane Russell, who was in Gentlemen Prefer Blonde, etc. We talked about things like gender and masculinity. She was, you know, she was Republican, right wing, conservative, but a brilliant human being. And and so that that was what was great. If we didn't have cinema in common, I would have been in awe. But because mm-hmm. we we loved movies together, then I wasn't. I mentioned women in film, which, you know, I gifted to two different people, bought the DVD. It was a wonderful thing to do. And it's funny, people, yeah, we'll talk retainers later, but people love still getting DVDs, I found. And we give them away on this show most weeks and still people like to tangibly own them. But I'm wondering, that to me seemed to get a, a great reaction. Were you heartened with the response to that or what's your take on it a year later? amazing so you know first of all to work with the voiceover artists in that film you know you remember the people who voiced that film people like jane russell and sharmila tagore who's one of the most famous women in the world not so much in the western world but you know across the world and a huge movie star so that was great alone but more importantly you know this was a film made you know in love with cinema but also anger at the on-level playing field Mm -hmm. for female directors and already and this film is only a few years old but already it's changed the way film is taught in film schools around the world and some of the the um 
filmmaker, female filmmakers that I talk about in that movie. They're not familiar names, but it's Kira Murativa and it's Kinyo Tanaka and Binka Zheliaskova. Already these people are having box sets. Their films are being restored. They're having box sets. Their films are being represented internationally. How satisfying is that? You know, if I do nothing else, to be honest, John, I will just be very moved and touched that I lent my shoulder to the wheel and helped to bring about some change in that area. Yeah, well, fair play. Mission accomplished. And listen, finally, because, you know, I could just stay talking to you all day, but I know we have miles to go before we sleep, as Robert Frost said. Robert Frost, what a great poem that is. Yeah. Finally, I mentioned uh, those copper-haired kids of mine, right? And I was thinking about this, you know, they they get impatient now if there's a three-minute delay on the Netflix or the Disney Plus or wherever app, and I say to them stuff like, you know, oh, that movie isn't out yet, and they're like aghast with the idea that they can't you know immediately stream it it seems to me and i'm going somewhere with this that what you do a lot of is is curation you help people and and you were doing it back in video video drum all those years ago telling people here's here are good things to watch so i'm wondering you know in the world of the instant stream and and everything is out there and there's just an endless amount of things to watch do you have a sense that what you do in terms of curating movies and telling people you might want to check this out might be more important than ever and I don't want to put words in your mouth but it seems to me that that's the way that people like you might be more important now than ever I totally agree, you know, and and I, I, I still love this copper-colored kids image. <laughs> Those copper-colored copper kids, if they're copper-haired kids, if they have to wait three minutes, what you're what you're seeing there, John, is their desire for something. Mm. You know, they're longing, they want to see it. Now, obviously, they're impatient to, you know, three minutes or, th- or 30 seconds is not a long time to wait. And when I was growing up, I don't know what... I know you're younger than me, but, you know, I presume that even when you're growing up, you, it, it wasn't that fast. No. But desire is desire. Mm. And the longing for cinema or music is the longing for cinema. And the fact that they want it is good, you know, and that's what mm. we can, that's what, that's what we play with, you know. And, yeah. you know, that, that's what we want our young people our, and our old people to, to desire to have an encounter with something bigger than themselves, a kind of sublime. And if you watch Singing in the Rain or if you watch, you know, Jane Campion's new film, that's, mm. which has just come out, you know, you, you what you're saying is, I want this. I mm. want to plunge into this world. I want to jump tracks. I'm on one track and I, and I want to be on another track. So that's all good. And we work with that. But of course, curation and is crucial to that. And that's part of my job and your job. Yeah. So in a way, then you're saying, you know, we shouldn't get too worried about, I suppose, the not to sound like Karl Marx, but the, the means of distribution, that it's it, it's the desire to watch it. And we shouldn't get too worried if it's in the cinema or it's on a streaming site or it's on someone's yeah, phone. Yeah, of course, you know, as a, yeah, as a filmmaker, I want everything to be in the cin- mm. cinema, you know, but I'm also aware that for reasons of, of lack of mobility or, you know, anxiety, not everybody can get can go to a, a cinema mm. and so uh yeah um 
Uh, yeah, C- cinema is something that I just need in my life. I don't mm-hmm. want it. I really need it. You know, and I think a lot of people feel that, and that kind of longing is timeless. And I think as human beings, way before the movies were invented in 1895, the way before, way before other things, human beings wanted to get out of themselves. They wanted to have an experience bigger than themselves. Uh, and I think people will always want that and people listening to this you know will know that it's very enjoyable to be sitting in your home and in your sofa watching something on netflix or whatever but we all want to get out you know we all want to see the northern lights or you know whatever you know yeah whatever the bigger experience is and so that's really good and that means that cinema will continue Absolutely. Well, listen, The Story of Looking is available on digital platforms. I checked last night. You can get it for about four quid to rent. I suggest you do it because like everything he does, it is chips. Absolutely. And it's not like anything you're going to see this year or any other year. Mark, you're one of my favourite people to talk to. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I love talking to you as well, John. Thanks. Until the next time. Yes. Mark Cousins there, the wonderful Mark Cousins. Any man or person, I should say, who will talk about Andrei Tarkovsky and Ingrid Bergman and Olivia Newton-John in Greece in the same breath and and claim that they're as important uh, is my kind of guest. My kind of dinner party guest, even, you might say. Someone I'd want to be stuck on a plane with. So my thanks to the wonderful Mark Cousins. And I could literally chat to him all day. He knows a lot about a lot of stuff. Up next, singer and now lately novelist Declan O'Rourke on his favourite movie. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. I'm delighted to be joined now by one of Ireland's most loved singer-songwriters and latterly novelist with his book. Unbrokers Reward doing extremely well in the book charts at the moment. Declan, how are you? I'm great, John. Thanks a lot and good to be on. Thank you. Now, listen, your movie choice is a Stonewall classic. It's old school. Uh, Tell our listeners what it is and why. I've chosen 12 Angry Men because it is a classic. A Stonewall classic is a great description. Uh, I don't know where that phrase comes from, but it's brilliant. (laughs) Let's just go with it. Let's go with it. It it is. It's just a brilliant film from start to finish. And, you know, it's great drama, but it's got moral kind of implications and beautifully made. And it's great, great cast, great bunch of personalities. It all happens in one room and it's very slowly unfolds. You know, it's just one of the greatest films ever made and, and has been called as much. Yeah. Now, oddly enough, we might just remind people what it's about, but I saw it in religion class back in the 80s or 90s in in my misspent youth, I remember. But just just remind people, it's the quintessential courtroom drama where 12 jurors are deciding the fate of a a man in the dock, essentially. Yeah, essentially. So there's a a young teenage kind of boy or, or, you know, adolescent anyway, and he's been charged with murder, you know, and it seems a very clear cut and dried case. And this jury is brought into the room to deliberate on it. And, you know, pretty much as soon as they're in the room, most of them, they, they do their secret ballot. And most of them uh, kind of vote to to convict him guilty and to sentence him to. I think he's going to be 
probably sentenced to death or life mm. imprisonment. I can't remember exactly. But, you know, one person has has said uh, not guilty. And then so they start to say, well, who's saying not guilty and what have you? And, you know, it becomes a job that one person tries to convince the rest mm. through kind of really examining what they've heard and going through it detail by detail. And some of them are just saying, oh, come on, this is, you know, and uh, it's beautifully, beautiful played out it gorgeous writing and and just a very triumphant in the end, I suppose. It's, it's a lovely human picture. Yeah. And you've got Henry Fonda as being the, the guy who's the fly in the ointment who's saying, let's let's look again at this. Exactly. And the other uh, main character at the other end of the scale, I suppose, is Lee J. Cobb, mm. who is brilliant. And they're all, you know, every one of them is somebody you recognize from something. They were all probably huge actors in their day. I think the film was made in 1957. Yeah. Um, I believe they remade it in the 90s, but I don't even want to look at that. <laughs> why bother? Like, why remake yeah, that movie? Yeah. And, you know, what I love about it as well is that each of the jurors, they're all bringing maybe with the exception of Henry Fonda, but they're all bringing some kind of baggage to proceedings. Like they're all, they're distinct characters of stuff going on in their own lives that is really affecting how they're seeing this case. Exactly. You know, as much as it's played out in the one room, there's a lot more going on in other dimensions to it. That's why it's so clever. It's yeah. a real thinking person's film, I suppose, you know. Yeah. Um, it's probably such a throwback to the old era because it is 12 men in, in the era mm. when when sadly you know they didn't even allow women jurors in the room yeah but, uh, that's that's of its time i suppose yeah no well look I, that notwithstanding it is a fantastic film just by the by I, we were talking earlier over email and you were really you know struggling to have to name one and you sent a list of whole other movies which are great you clearly watch a lot of movies uh not a lot no not a no. whole while i mean but your list seemed very erudite you know did it well you know i love foreign films i used to once upon a time when i was living in dublin in in a flat in rat mines and things like that over the years i used to always go and try and find a, a film at random just based on not on on that it was a sensational film or whatever but there was a great uh, shop in georgia street that sold foreign films and some really really great great cinema in in foreign language film uh i gave a couple of honorary mentions there dersu usla was one mm -hmm. um another one atanarawat it's spelled a-t-a-n-a-r-j-u-a-t which is a an inuit film from up up that direction mm -hmm. um uh, it's some just gorgeous film it's very hard to ever pick one isn't it you can yeah. only that that's what everyone says well look you have um we appreciate it tell me this now i butchered the intro to your lovely new book the poem broker's reward and i was trying to say that that it's doing very well now i was honest with you and said i haven't read it unfortunately it, it's on my to-do list but my colleague pat kenny has and he's he's been raving about it and for people who don't know it, it's a famine set novel it's it's around the family uh the ubukali family as i understand it a farm laborer and his wife and their children and then also uh, another character in it someone writing for a newspaper and it's it's a pretty dark tale about what goes on in the famine and i hope i'm not doing it a disservice or anything but i suppose the obvious question is why is this famous 
singer songwriter turning his hand to, to historical fiction? Well, I'm a sucker for a, a, a story and a human story. And this is very much probably the most powerful story I've ever come across in mm. all my years. And uh, it has stuck me with me for a long time. I wrote a song about it initially, which led to a collection of songs. But really, uh, 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 through one thing and another, I got the opportunity to write a book. And I went right back to the source of what inspired me on that subject. The, the the story itself of this family and their struggle to survive has a kind of a huge uh, kind of sweeping. It's almost like Greek tragedy proportions. Mm. What happens to them in the end and the the beauty and I, I think it's much more than being something dark. It's almost triumphant in terms of what they managed to do and the humanity in in the actions of of Padraig Ubuqla, who's the father of this young family. And it's a true story. It's based on everybody in it. I, I stopped counting after I had a list of about 180 named people who come and go in the book from the most central figures to ones who just passed through. And mm. I think only about five of them were, were people that I made up. They're all real people. I couldn't believe the amount of information I discovered. And really, really moving stuff about their lives. So it's basically a, a threading to back together of of how the famine unfolded through the lens of one single community and how they saw it unfold, which I think gives us a better sense of it than actually trying to understand the overall thing. But at the heart of it is that human story, which is something that we all relate to ironically much more than we can relate to something as big as the famine yeah tiny drop of it is what we can relate to because we all have family members and we all know how we feel about our family and that's what really strikes us about it that's what really hit me in the heart about this family and this story and am i right in saying that the the genesis of it or or what initially struck you was this tragic image of a man collecting his wife from a workhouse and they literally died walking home. Yeah, essentially 21 years ago, I read an account of the Brooklyn family and it was that they had gone into the workhouse uh, after exhausting every possibility open to them. They had two young children. They were all separated when they went in. That was what happened in those places. They were sent to different sections of it for men, women, boys and girls. And within about two or three weeks, the young children had died. And the man then decided, uh, and his wife, they decided to go home. To, to Basically, she was gravely ill, and I think they decided to go home and die at home. It was six miles away, and the way it was told and related by one of their neighbors, after a short distance, she could no longer walk, and he began to carry her on his back. He carried her for the guts of six miles on his back, and they, they eventually got there during the night, and but the next morning they were both found dead and the way they were found he was knelt down with his wife's feet held to his chest the neighbor said as if he was trying to warm them and wow. that's not the most powerful image and the most beautiful thing too mm -hmm. i mean to it's in in spite of probably the most dire circumstances imaginable to even reach the point of having nothing left to give your loved ones but the warmth of your body and then to give that to yeah. 
just so powerful, I think. And uh, I, I, I think a universal story. I think it's much bigger than our own island even you know yeah absolutely absolutely and i should tell listeners that uh one of the things the book has been praised for is the level of detail and and how accurate and how much research you did on it so uh fair play to your commemoration as well let me and i I should point out that the the pawnbroker's reward is in all good bookshops uh Finally, then, I, I've spoken to a lot of musicians and comedians in this slot in the last 18 months, and it's nearly a boring question at this stage, but, but I have to ask, how has lockdown been for you, the, the fact that you haven't been able to be on that stage? Because I know for a lot of musicians, that's their life force. Did you pour yourself into the book? Did, was it tough at times? How, how have the last 18 months been for you? I did absolutely pour myself into the book. I had already begun before, before lockdown kicked in. Um, so it was in, in that sense, it was a great opportunity for me to become immersed in something in a way that I couldn't normally. And, mm. you know, during lockdown itself, I didn't miss a single day and over six months in the, in the first section of it, every, every day, seven days a week, I locked myself in the room and it was really, really, uh, beneficial to me in that way, but bigger than that. And more importantly to me, it was a great time to to concentrate on we have a young child here a little boy and it was just uh family time that you'll never mm. get again and um you know the the terrible things aside about the pandemic and the fact that people were suffering i think it gave us all an opportunity to look at to t- stop and take stock and where our lives are where we mm. are in our lives and what we want to have in life and you know, uh, there and, and it slowed things down in other ways. You know, we're, we're having big problems in the world with climate change, obviously, and everything like that. So I think it, it gave it gave us an opportunity to just stop for a minute. Yeah. And, and just on that, in terms of maybe getting going again, are there upcoming gigs? Is there a return to the stage planned? Yeah, I, I mean, I've already had a tour, which was uh, the timing of it was you know fortuitous and and but a lot of people in behind the scenes worked very hard to try and find a spot where they thought it would work and um, you know huge thanks and credit to them it uh, I, I i performed a tour in the uk there about three or four weeks ago for two weeks and it was really really enjoyable to be back on mm-hmm. the stage i have an irish tour in march which uh, goes all around the country and and kind of the big date is in Vicker Street, but I'll be I'll be in all the major cities, really looking forward to that and hope that that can happen. You know, yeah. at the moment, it seems like the timing of it will be good, but you just can't tell, I guess. Um, yeah, well, look, let's let's hope against hope and uh, hopefully see you on a stage soon. His favorite movie is 12 Angry Men. His f- debut novel, uh, which is getting rave reviews, The Pawn Brokers Reward is in all good box shops. Declan O'Rourke, thanks very much for chatting to me. John, lovely to talk to you, and thanks a lot for having me on. Brother, you really are something. You sit here, vote guilty like the rest of us, and some golden voice preacher starts tearing your poor heart out about some underprivileged kid just couldn't help becoming a murderer, and you change your vote. <laughs> if that isn't the most sickening... Why don't you drop a quarter in this collection box? 
A clip there from the wonderful 12 Angry Men. It really is a great film. And it was lovely to talk to Declan O'Rourke, uh, who chose it as his favourite movie. And also to chat to him about his new novel, The Pawnbroker's Reward, which, as I say, is getting rave reviews. And it's on my to-read list, which is extensive enough because I have to watch so much stuff. Getting around to books... You know, don't get me wrong, I read, but I find whenever I have time to sit down, I usually have to watch something. So I'll figure that out. That's nothing for you to worry about now, dear listeners. I'll sort that out. That is it for this week. All going to plan next week, I'm going to be talking to Lynn manuel Miranda, which I'm very excited about, about his new movie, TikTok Boom, which is currently on Netflix. More of that next week. Just, just want to thank Anne-Marie Kane for all the work she did this week and indeed every other week on the show. My thanks to her. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage, you can email me screentime at newstalk.com or my Twitter handle is John underscore Fardy. Just remind you, you can listen back to this show at any stage on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud as a podcast. Listen at six in the morning, six at night, midnight, whenever. Or you can listen on the radio, that good old fashioned thing radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. right here on Newstalk. Stay safe, enjoy the rest of your weekend and I'll talk to you all next week.